The rest of us, we're going to continue this series, Are They Really Getting It? And, you know, and these are the they that we're trying to make sure they get it. And you're saying, well, then why are we dismissing them? They're going to get it on their level this morning. And I pray that our parents and grandparents, all the rest of us as leaders, volunteers in the church, you name it, that we're learning to get it so that we can pass it on to the next generation. So you've got your Bibles. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at one verse primarily, our primary text, but then uh, we will see a, a number of passages that admonish and what Peter was admonishing, and that is to pass on this faith and to be able to do it in a way that they can know what they believe and why they believe it and know how to defend it. So let's stand and look at verse uh, 15, 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, but set apart, some of your translations say sanctify, same thing. To sanctify means to set apart. The word holy means one who is set apart, so you could even have to make holy. Set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an offense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. There's a lot in a few words there. We want to understand it. We want to live it. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's truth without any mixture of error. Lord, I pray that we would stand strong on it, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's you, Lord. That's your word. Lord, help us to not compromise it one iota. Lord, I pray that as a church family and that every individual family represented here, we'd get passionate about passing it on to the generations to come. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, because of the cultural climate that's in the world today, it's had a lot of uh, uh, conservative Christians, if you will, talking more. And by the way, a lot of conservatives who aren't Christians even talking about this. You you do know that all conservatives aren't necessarily Christian, right? You can be politically conservative and be just as lost as uh, anybody else. But there are a lot of Christians who are talking a lot about the Second Amendment and becoming more and more equipped. We say, man, there's more and more violence in the world than we ever expected, even in our neck of the woods. And, and people are learning more about self-defense. People are learning how, I mean, my wife, who never wanted to be around a firearm in her life, is starting to say, maybe I need to learn uh, how to use a handgun or shoot or things like that. And we t- we t- we're talking more about things that we never thought we would have to be talking about. Uh, you know, ammunition cells are up and people can't find it. And we're talking about how to handle things and how to do it safely and all of that, that discussion, because people are saying, and by the way, as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we can even point to a verse in Exodus as well as a verse in Luke and say it's even biblical that Moses and Jesus talked about the home being armed. And if they talked about it, then obviously there's biblical precedence biblical precept that we can stand on. So without apology, I don't mind defending the Second Amendment. However, just as there are some Bible verses that talk about that, and even saying if you were to, in the process of defending your family, if you were to take a life that was trying to take a life, in the process of defending your family, or when law enforcement has to do it, that there's biblical justification for that. And there is, again, we could go to Exodus chapter 22 or Luke chapter 11 and point that out. Do you realize there's about a thousand more verses and a reminder that it's about a thousand times more important that we are spiritually equipped to defend our families against spiritual attack? 
And the tragedy of it all is that Christian conservatives within the Bible Belt in rural northeast Georgia can talk all about how to physically defend themselves and physically and materially defend their families or their homes. Very few, as we saw at the beginning of this whole series on passing it on, very few can spiritually prepare or say their children are spiritually defended or are able to defend themselves and their faith, the faith that was once for all committed to the saints. It's imminent. First Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so while many of us are ready to physically defend our homes, we invite the devil right in and give him a place on the sofa, give him the remote to the TV, allow him access to the laptops in our children's bedrooms and all that is going on in our home, and we are ill-equipped to defend them. They are not armed and ready for battle when they go out and face the confrontations in the real world. Ephesians 6, 12 reminds us that those enemies are not flesh and blood, but their powers and principalities and rulers of this present dark world in which we live. Spiritual forces of wickedness in high places that become entrenched in places of influence, in places of power, in places where they're teaching and preaching and, and, and speaking into the life of the next generation. And the church and our families will do more to train because there's one verse in the Old Testament and one verse in the New Testament that says we have a right and we should do this. We'll do more to train the next generation to be equipped to defend themselves physically than we'd even though there are thousands of verses in the Old Testament and thousands in the New Testament that tell them they need to be equipped spiritually and they'll lose those spiritual battles which are not temporal but eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 say, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. They're not material weapons. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Let me ask you, is your family equipped for that battle? Can they tear down the philosophical arguments that this world is going to throw at them to wreck their faith? Jude 3, that I quoted even in a prayer a moment ago, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Are we ready to fight that battle? Are we ready to defend those things that are the most eternal things in our life? Well, this verse that we just read, 1 Peter 3.15, gives us two areas of preparation. These two areas are something our church has to commit to and has been committed and will continue to grow in our commitment to. And this also applies to the home. These are a couple of areas we want to ask, and I want to call out every home that represents our church family to please, let's arm the next generation for battle. Let's prepare the next generation to be equipped in these two areas. Here's the first. Number one, to be prepared to acknowledge Christ as Lord in the face of persecution. To, to be prepared, to be equipped to acknowledge Christ as Lord in the face of persecution. 
Now, if you go back and kind of catch this in context, he's saying, who will arm you if you're passionate about what is good? Because we've been talking about the passionate summit. Uh, the passion summit, we want to be passionate about the right things, righteously guided passion, igniting righteous passion, as we looked at it last week. And he says, but even if you should suffer right, for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Peter has argued, listen, if you're going to suffer persecution, let it be for the right things. <laughs> don't get yourself in trouble for doing stupid stuff, he was saying. Don't, don't get yourself in trouble because of your own sinful choices. But if you're going to suffer in this world, suffer for the right things. Paul told Timothy, if anybody desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Now, are we equipping a generation for that. And so he says in verse 15, so sanctify, set apart, be determined to make Christ the Lord of your hearts. In other words, for that person who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe they did it during those presentation years, somewhere maybe between first and fifth grade when they're understanding the gospel, but perhaps it happened even later in life. May, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful we have seen people in their 70s come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in our church before. But at whatever point, they may not have been fully aware of the fact that now they're going to be going against the grain. Their faith is going to be under attack throughout the rest of their life. There's going to be an enemy coming against them because they're not walking in the same direction of that enemy. Especially if they came to Christ at a young age, they might have been protected or shielded from that to some degree, but then they become more and more exposed to it in the days and the years to come. And so that first might come in the form of the attack of their own flesh, the fleshly desires that come against them as the devil uses that flesh to appeal to them and to try to tempt them and to draw them out. That's why we focused on the purity summit already. Then temptation to please self over pleasing God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that might lead to some kind of uh, chemical addiction, some kind of sexual addiction, or the desire for power, desire for money. It might be that they become distracted from kingdom service because they become passionate workaholics for things that are not as righteous. And so the question that they have to be faced with early on is, am I willing to die to self? Now listen, when it comes to persecution, most of us focus on what happens in many other nations and rarely but occasionally in this nation, and that is would I be willing to physically die for my faith? And I've answered that in here already, and that is not if we're not willing to live for our faith. If we're not living to live for Jesus, we'd never be willing to die for Jesus. The bigger question is, am I willing to die to my flesh? Am I willing to die to my own passions, my own desires? Am I willing to die to self so that I might come alive in Christ? Remember Moses, the Hebrews described him this way when he came out from under Pharaoh's leadership and the protection of Pharaoh's daughter, right? And he all of a sudden said, I'm going to stand for what is right and for my people that God has called me to deliver. Hebrews says he chose to suffer with the children of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So Yahweh was Lord of his life, the greatest commandment 
given all the way back in the Shema that Moses wrote himself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He went to that commandment that Moses had penned. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Peter is saying you sanctify him as Lord in your heart, and you don't allow the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life, or even the pressures of this world, the persecution that may come from peers, the political powers that try to influence your life, and as we'll see later in the message, the philosophies of the day. You don't allow them to take that throne of your heart. Only Jesus is worthy of that throne. It might be in the form when they're young or they become teenagers, middle school years, high school years, that some boyfriend or girlfriend wants to be on the throne of their heart and that young person needs to be able to say, no, Jesus sits on the throne of my heart and I will always do things his way, not my way and not your way, but God's way. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles, remember, were being persecuted. Peter had already said, listen, you can decide for yourself whether we ought to obey man rather than God, but we're going to obey God. We're going to do what God's, Jesus Christ is, in, is Lord of our life. And the political powers couldn't stand that. They couldn't stand the exclusivity of the gospel. But Jesus had died for them, and they were going to live for Christ. Later on, remember that when the leaders realized that they couldn't really change their way of thinking, it says they beat them. And the, this is what blows my mind. It says that, that Peter and John, the apostles, went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You know, one of my favorite verses, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing and his suffering. Do we wake up every morning saying, Lord, give me the opportunity to suffer for you today? Probably not. Probably not, but suffering is part of the Christian faith. Persecution is always going to come against us. We're told that it's going to take place. And the culture in which we live is becoming more and more hostile, even in the Western world, even in this great nation, more hostile toward the things of God. So how do we respond? We'll move quickly to the second point this morning. We'll spend a little time here because we have to be ready to answer critics with a reasoned defense of the faith. We have to be ready to answer critics with a reasoned defense of the faith. Now, before we get into the defensive element, right, let's look at the positive side. Many times we, we think of defending ourselves as a negative thing, or at least being defensive as a negative thing, but let's look at the positive. When you look at the second part of verse 15, he says, the reason we have to be prepared is to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's, I think, a problem. Before we get into some of the, the meatier stuff of defending the faith here in a moment, I think we have to stop and ask the question in all seriousness, is the world looking at the body of Christ and seeing the hope that is within us? Or do we look frightened and hopeless and panicking. I think in the world today, they see the church, and by and large, they see Christians panicking, saying, oh no, what are we going to do? As I've said before, as the world becomes what the apocalyptic literature in Scripture says the world is going to become like in the last days, as Christians, we act like we're more surprised than the world, and we should be looking at the Bible saying, I saw it coming. 
I, I saw it coming. The Lord said, this is what's going to happen. And we should display hope and confidence. The world should never see us sweat. But see us with courage saying, hey, I expect this to happen. And I'm praying for you because you don't see it. You don't understand. You don't have this revelation that I have in the Word of God. You haven't embraced it. And so do you display the hope and confidence? Or as a church, are so many Christians so stinking fearful because we're not ushering the kingdom in ourselves and turning the political systems upside down and in some kind of, and I know some of my post-millennial friends that think that we're going to usher in the kingdom without Jesus. Listen, you got another thing coming. Psalm 118, verses 5 through 7, I called to the Lord in my distress, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. In the face of persecution, in the face of, listen, it's not that Christians will actually be called haters, and many times we're just going to simply be the hated because when people hate the righteous standard of God and you embrace a righteous standard, then you're considered a hater and you end up being the recipient of my hate. We need a generation of people like Daniel's friends who will say, you know, I will not bow. By God's grace, I may not even burn, right? Remember how they prayed? Remember how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego confronted Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen, if you guys aren't going to bow to my systems, to, to, to this, this agenda that we've placed before you, if you're not going to bow to the image, then you're going to be thrown into the fire. And they said, look, our God is able to deliver us. God's got this. In the face of being thrown into the fire, they said, our God is able to deliver this. And you know, that's not their greatest statement of faith. God is able to deliver is a powerful statement of faith, and we need to make that statement of faith. But to then say, as they said, but if not... See, somebody's going to tell you that you have a lack of faith if you even throw in the but if not. They said, but if not, we still won't bow. If it's God's desire to call me on to glory, I'm still going to serve him. That's what they were saying in the face of persecution. They experienced the power and the presence of Almighty God. We have to be wise. We have to be shrewd. We have to be careful. Sometimes, if needed, we have to be diplomatic but we don't have to be afraid. And then we need to be able to give a defense. And now, so in verse 15, when you see this word defense, it's the Greek word, some of you know this, apologia. We get our word apology and apologetic. Now, an apology, by the way, in modern English, we've kind of messed this up. An apology is not saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, when you, when you taught your kids how to say that they're sorry or to apologize, and they kind of thought, okay, well, that's kind of the license to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'm going to quickly say I'm sorry and get away with it, right? You don't have to tell on your kids. You probably had that happen with at least one of them, right? As long as I say I'm sorry, it's okay. An apology is not a I'm sorry. An apology is explaining why you did what you did. It's a defense of the faith. And so when he says, be ready to give a defense, give it, be ready to give an apologia, be ready to explain to them, here is why I believe what I believe. Now, there are a number of apologetic approaches to defending the faith. And I think a seasoned Christian, especially one that has grown up in this church from childhood 
Listen, I always say my daughter's the test case because she was born three weeks after we moved to Georgia. I became pastor of this church. She was born three weeks later, and she grew up in this church. I always said she's going to be a real test case if, if this church and, of course, my home, if we're all about making disciples. But if someone grows up in this church, I want them to be seasoned in all of these areas. Bibliology is the first approach. In other words, how do we defend the faith? By defending this book, by saying, listen, this book is like no other book. It was delivered like no other book. This is, uh, it, it can't be blown out of the water like the other worldviews and world religions and the, say, let's say the Book of the Mormon, which has all kinds of flaws in its how it got here, or say the, um, uh, the Quran, and I'll talk about that just a little bit later. But to say this book is like no other book, and to be able to study how, not only study this book, but study how this book was inspired of the Holy Spirit and preserved supernaturally over the years becomes a great, then if I believe the book is authentic and the book is authoritative, then I'm going to believe everything in the book. So some people start with bibliology, and that's not a bad place to start. Some start with Christology. In other words, they believe that in light of the biblical evidence, we start to examine history and all the evidence that we discover that Jesus is who he claimed to be. One of the greatest debaters of Christian apologetics who defend the faith, Lee Strobel, wrote the book A Case for Christ because he said there's no way Jesus could be who he claimed to be. You know, he was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune not a bastion of conservatism at all, but he said, I'm going to set out to prove. You can watch it. There's a, a great movie that's called The Case for Christ, true story of Lee Strobel. But he said, I'm going to set out to prove that the Bible can't be true, that Jesus can't be who he claimed to be. And then even the evidence for the resurrection. So Christology, the study of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, have led people like Josh McDowell to say, hey, I set out to prove as a lawyer that the gospel would not hold water in the court of law, but what I discovered in the process of doing my homework is that Jesus had to be who he claimed to be. Arguments of people like C.S. Lewis stand out that Jesus has to be Lord, liar, or lunatic. In other words, he claimed to be Lord. He claimed to be the Son of God with power and authority. Claimed to have come to die for the sins of the world and rise again. And so either he's who he claimed to be or he's a liar. You can't say, like so many other religions, he was a good prophet. Or the secular humanists who say he was a good person. A good person wouldn't lie and deceive an entire movement of people to worship him and to follow him. So C.S. Lewis was right. He's Lord, liar, or he was some crazed lunatic. You can't just say he was a good person. And so Christology is another great approach we can get into other philosophical subjects like uh, metaphysics and ontology, which has to do with being and reality and, and coming into existence. How did the world get here? What's its purpose for being here? Is there any order to this planet on which we live and to our human existence? How did we get here and why are we here? And I'm going to tell you, I, I did a lot of this type of apologetic preaching in a series I preached. I'm not, we don't have time today to break down every one of these areas, but I preached a series called Why. I appreciate Pastor Jeff archiving all that for us. You can go to our website, 
You can go to the other locations where we have our podcasts, and you can listen to those sermons on why we believe the Bible, why we believe creation, why we believe in Jesus as the exclusive Son of God, why we believe all there in that series. And I'm telling you, we've got a reasoned faith that causes all other worldviews to pale in comparison. But defending against philosophical attacks, the attacks of other faith, in other words, preparing a generation for what's coming, we have to get into the field. And I know I have talked to pastors and professors who say, well, we need to stay away from this, but we have to get into the field of polemics. Polemics means that you have to teach a generation what other people believe. You have to put it out there, and then you have to blow it out of the water. (laughs) There's no way to be nice about it. One of our men asked me recently, does the Bible command us anywhere to be nice? I said, well, it commands us to be kind, (laughs) but I don't know that it commands us to be nice. And so there's probably no nice way of putting it. But Paul said that we have to be able to demolish arguments against the gospel. And so that means we can't just say as parents or as grandparents, well, we were brought up to believe the Bible. We've always believed it, and you're not to question it. No, Peter is saying in this passage, you better be able to answer the questions. And apologia means you have to be able to articulate, here's why I believe this. Here's why it holds water. When Paul says you need to be able to shoot down all the other philosophies, then you have to know the philosophies. You have to know what the enemy's doing, right? Not only will a great coach plan, have the game plan for his team, he'll try to know what the other team's game plan is so that he knows how to counter that. That's an apologia. Being able to demolish their arguments. Now, do we know the various worldviews, and do we know what makes Christianity different? And have we explained that? Yesterday, my my wife is working on her master's in biblical counseling, and she had a homework assignment to kind of practice with me a little bit, and we spent a couple of hours. I really enjoyed it because it's on marriage counseling right now. And and she goes, all right, things I have to get other couples to do, you and I have to do it today. And so we walked through it, and it was just a sweet practice. And listen, all these things that I'm preaching on and talking about, it's not going to last unless you sit down with your kids and have these conversations and walk through these subjects with them. Do they know and understand the differing worldviews? Let's look at those, and then we'll look at the divergent beliefs in Christians and in Christianity. First of all, atheism, also known as rationalism or secular humanism. Do they understand that that is technically the worship of humanity or uh, the planet, the world in which we live? And I know that the atheists and the secular humanists And the ACLU and everybody that represents them will try to argue, listen, we're against all religion whatsoever. Look closely at what they're teaching. Look closely at what they're saying. They're not against religion. They just want to switch religions. They're saying, listen, we don't believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. We don't want to embrace the Christian religion because it calls us to a life of repenting from sin and self and trusting in Jesus. And we don't want to do that. There's got to be a better way. We'll just say that's not real. And what becomes of secular humanism and atheism is exalted humanity. Well, then we've got to worship mankind. We've got to say mankind is basically good. Only the environment can corrupt them over time. Not what the Bible teaches. We're sinners by nature and by choice from the moment of conception. There's a great ethical dilemma with atheism. All you have to do when you're debating an atheist is keep asking the question, who says? Who says? Who says? 
Who gets to be the authority? Well, I believe this. Well, who says? Where do you get that from? Well, then who said that? Who said that? Where did it all start? What's the authority? I, I have a dear friend who is atheist. And back when everybody was, um, not everybody, but much of the culture, they were taking the, um, the equal sign as their profile picture on Facebook. And so I just put a question. And by the way, I do believe all men are created equal, right? I do believe male and female created he them in his image. We're all equally created in the image of God. But I was fishing. You ever do that? You ever put something out on social media and you're just fishing for a response, right? And so I was fishing and I just said, who says we're all equal? Whether you're talking about uh, race, sex, nationality, whatever. I said, who says we're all equal? So while I believe in equality, I just, you know, everybody was using the equal sign really to argue for something else. I just said, who says we're all equal? And then, you know, different Christians were letting me have it. Well, God says we're all equal. And I'm like, I know that. I'm not fishing for you, just waiting. And eventually my friend says, well, even in our founding documents, we say that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And I'm like, got them hooked, right? Created equal, right? Yes, we're all equal because we have a creator who says we're equal because he created us to be equal. That means I care what the, if if I'm going to argue for equality, I'm arguing that I care what the creator said. If I care what the creator said, if the creator said we're created equal and God made them man and God made them woman, then that's not our decision. And if God said marriage is between a man and a woman, that's not, that's the creator. And the moment I reject something else the creator says, I've got to reject everything the creator said. And then I'm back to just man's opinion. It's really just survival of the fittest when it comes to our opinions. Who says? Who says? And so then we have to move into some kind of moral relativism, which relates not as much to atheism, but what a lot of people have embraced going all the way back to the New Age movement, pantheism and panentheism, the Eastern mystic religions that say everything is God or that God is everything, pantheism, or that um, everything is in God in some way, moving together within God, panentheism, which leads to, well, if everything is God, guess what? And God is good, then everything is good. You learned that in algebra, right? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If everything is God and God is good, then everything is good. And everything is just relative. And your good might not be my good, and my good may not be your good. As the eagles used to sing, there ain't no good God, there ain't no bad God, there's just you and me, and we just disagree, right? I keep bringing up these songs. I'm going to get more and more of you to confess your carnality with me. Relativism, all is good. And here's the craziest thing about part of the Eastern religions is if all is God and all is good, then why do we keep having to be reincarnated till we get it right or escape into some kind of nirvana? And so some have rejected that. And listen, you think that atheism and secular humanism is an intellectual movement. You know there were more intellectuals especially you go back to the days of the founding of this nation, there were more intellectuals who would consider themselves, dea, consider themselves deists than atheists. The deist says, I believe there was a God, 
Maybe there is a God. He so transcends us that we can't find him. They, so they slip into a practical agnosticism, but they say, hey, there's intelligent design. The world makes sense. It's the whole divine watchmaker theory that sometimes even those of us who are creationists will use that says that there's too much order in the world. There's a fact not only that the sunset is beautiful, that something is within me that I can appreciate that sunset. So there had to be a God who created all of this intelligently with a purpose, but the deist says, but because we don't see the miraculous happening day in and day out, we believe that God backed off. God put it all into motion And it's just on its own. And so any God, we can't really know him. He so transcends us. They neglect the Christian theology of Revelation that says God can reveal himself to us. Now, few still slip into polytheism. Polytheism. Many gods. You get a God, you get a God, you get a God, you get a God. Everybody gets a God today. Or everybody can become a God. Sometimes we refer to uh, an area of polytheism as finite Godism. And most of us would say, hey, we never struggle with that and we don't see it in the world today, except for in the fact that we have so many idols, right? So many things that we make Lord of our hearts, we put them on the throne of our heart as a priority when God should be there. But polytheism, all these finite gods, these gods can't even get it right. And so when you look at the various worldviews, there are easy contradictions. And we don't have time to get into it today, but I'm telling you, just spend a little time reading, spend a little time doing your homework. In every other worldview, you can just easily teach your children to kind of blow that out of the water. It's almost comical how self-contradictory they all are. And then you get to theism. Christian theism is a branch of theism Theism in itself just means, hey, I believe that there is one God who is above all, transcends all, created all. There's only three major religions in the world that are theistic religions that don't try to violate a lot of the laws of non-contradiction. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. What does Islam teach? You're left with a man who was claiming to be a prophet who encountered an angel named Gabriel, supposedly, right? Not a lot of checks and balances like where we have dozens and dozens of human authors writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at different times and a beautiful continuity with checks and balances in the Scripture. No, this is just one man saying, I'm going to change all that. I was not approved to be a minister in the Christian church, so we're going to come up with something different. It comes up with a revelation that provides for the robbing of caravans violently, bringing grief and violence into the life of many people, tolerating things like sexual abuse, Quran, Surah 35, explaining that, hey, if you're going to divorce your wife before she reaches the age of puberty, wait at least three months to make sure she's not pregnant. And so that history tells us that even the prophet Muhammad himself was married at age six, but uh, married a young girl at age six, but didn't consummate the wedding until age nine. You can go on and on with the problems with, here's what's attractive to works-based religion, but you have the five pillars of Islam. You can take that and you can say, here's me a checklist. 
And that's what we need. That's what the human heart in its depraved state wants. Give me a checklist. Give me five things that if I do those five things, I'm going to heaven. Because the heart knows that it needs salvation, right? So give me something to do to earn my salvation. Listen, we can't just pick on Islam any branch of a Christian cult that moves outside of the Scriptures. They become works-based. And so whether you're talking about Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witness, you're all of a sudden saying, it's too good to be true that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Give me a checklist. I need that. I need it. Some of you are wired that way, man. You have an endorphin kick when you check those things off, and you're like, ah, I did it. And so all of these works-based religions give you a checklist. And then there's Judaism. These are the foundations of Christianity, right? Jesus came out of the Jewish people. The Bible says he came into his own, but his own received him not. He was their Messiah, just as he is our Messiah. He was their Messiah first. But he came into his own. His own received him not, but as many as received him, many of them did. Paul said, look, there was a remnant But his heart was broken that they all had not come to faith in Christ. And he said, but one day there's going to be an awakening among the Jewish people, and they're going to realize that Messiah came as Jesus Christ in that first coming to die for the sins of the world. By the way, I believe the 144,000 witnesses in Revelation is that great Jewish revival that turns the world upside down with people willing to be martyred for the cause of Christ. I don't think it's 144,000 people who were converted to the Jehovah's Witness faith. They started having a problem with that when their numbers grew past 144,000, by the way. Then there's Christianity that says, yeah, we, we, we embrace the foundations of Judaism. We embrace everything you're reading in the Old Testament, but we do believe Jesus is the Messiah goes back to our Christology, right? That we believe he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And we confess that, as we said the Apostles' Creed, we confess that as we sang, I believe, this morning. And we know, according to John 14, 6, that not only is he the way, he is the only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Are we teaching a generation what everybody else believes, the problem with what everybody else believes, And that Jesus Christ is the only way, is the only hope. And are they willing to stand for that in the face of persecution? So we close this morning, and you can see it there in your bulletin. I'm going to share six areas of divergence between Christianity and the other religions. And then we'll have some young people illustrate something for us. What makes Christianity different? Number one, our God is personal. Our God is The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, wants a relationship with you and with me. Secondly, our Christ is a Savior. He didn't just come to teach us about a way. He was the way. Christ came to die on a cross in my place to satisfy a demand for holiness. I could never check enough things off a checklist to meet his righteous requirements. Jesus paid the price for me on Calvary's cross. Also, our faith places great value on all people because we say they're all created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I can say, without a doubt, the Jew, the Muslim, the pantheist, the deist, the atheist, I love them and I want to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want them to know God has a plan for their life. We have purpose. 
Our philosophy of history is purposeful. It's going somewhere. One day Christ will come to judge the living and the dead and make all things right. In Christianity, like no other religion, salvation is by grace through faith. And finally, we have resurrection hope, not just some immaterial nirvana through which we somehow escape the confines of our flesh. We sing sometimes, he shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. It's about a relationship with him. A church, mom, dad, grandparents, I've shown you in God's word that our job is to equip a generation to be able to defend the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. How are we doing? When we started this study, I gave you some statistics. I want to demonstrate those statistics. Easy for me to say. I want to ask these students standing in the back. I need 10 of you to stand across the front right here. We were talking as we started this study about highly resilient disciples. Highly resilient disciples and our desire to bring up a generation of young people that when they go out, when they're launched into this world, they'll stick with the Word of God. They'll walk closely with the God of the Word, that they'll make a difference in this world. And so that means we've got to pass the baton, right? Pastor Ben illustrated with a baton when we started this whole journey that it's so important that we make sure they get it. You know, there's a little zone. We have any track stars around here? Anybody run track? There's a little zone, right? What do they call that zone where you have to pass the baton? The pass off. So if, if we don't get it done there, it's too late, right? And if they drop it, what happens? It's over. You're done. You're out. And so I believe these are all highly resilient disciples, but for the sake of statistics, let me illustrate what's happening today. We're presenting the gospel. We're sharing it. We're going to church, trying to keep our nose clean. The next thing you know, they might observe something going on on TV where people are saying those mean-spirited Christians, those mean-spirited Christians, they're bigots, they're haters. And so a young student says, I don't want to be a bigot or a hater, and we go to pass it off, and they're like, man, no thanks, you can have a seat. You can go, go ahead and go to you say, I'm going, I'm going to eliminate about everybody here, just about. Let, let's say the, the next student, they've heard all this stuff, right? They've heard it in the home. They've heard it at church. But they go to school, and then their friends start saying, yeah, but you're missing out on some of the fun because we're going to a party Friday night. If you're a Christian, you have to miss out on those kind of things. And so the, the flesh begins to attack, and they miss the baton. You can have a seat. And then it seems like all the boys at school are bad guys. And if you want to be liked, then you've got to compromise your faith. And so she doesn't take the baton. We drop the ball. Then the parents... Parents, instead of passing baton, 
they were arguing with each other and not doing that provision summit where we provide an environment where the Word of God is true. And she looks at mom and dad and says, well, if it doesn't work for them, it won't work for me. By the way, her parents love the Lord, just like me. <laughs> then they get into high school and some liberal teacher explains that, listen, if you believe in biblical creation, you're an idiot. Because all this stuff just evolved. Two chemicals bumped rears in the air one day and there was an explosion and it all came into place. So that makes more sense in the Bible because they didn't understand how to defend biblical creation. Then they have to do a term paper to justify their stance on abortion. And they're called, hey, you don't believe in a woman's right to choose, you don't believe in equal rights, then you're also a bigot, so you can have a seat. Then it's just, a young man comes along and he's like, I'm not going to give in to peer pressure, and everybody in the cafeteria is laughing and telling jokes. Well, I don't want to deal with the jokes, so we lose another one. Then we have a few that make it through high school and they get ready to go to college, but now those college professors start presenting all these other worldviews and say, keep your mouth shut. You don't need to be hurt here. Then politicians, after we've come so far, politicians have made certain things legal and illegal that contradict our faith. Well, I don't want to be seen in a bad light with the government. And so another one sits down. Here's what the statistics tell us. Highly resilient disciples of people who grow up in the church one out of 10, hold tight to the scriptures. So we're gonna make a good handoff this time. You take it and you run with it, right? You make a good, and he's got a pretty good grip on it. One out of 10, you can hold on to that one and remember that illustration, right? One out of 10, according to the research that we have today of kids who are growing up in the church are getting a good enough grasp on the faith knowing all the holes in all the other worldviews so that through those college years. Now, some of those that walk away from the church, about three in 10 might, when they have children, say, I think we need to get back to the church. Many never return. That's not talking about how the teenagers in the world. That's talking about the students that grew up in the church. It's much worse um, the numbers are much worse among those who weren't part of the church. Now, let me share with you, the numbers are a little bit skewed. Why? Because about 60% of the churches aren't teaching that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word. You know, about 40% of pastors believe in the total authority of Scripture when surveyed, that there is a real devil, that there is a real Christ who is the only way, that there's a real heaven and a real hell, and that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the fact that we believe that alone puts us ahead of those numbers here at Trinity. And I believe with all my heart the fact that we're being very intentional and not apologizing for saying we want to reach the next generation with the gospel, whatever it takes, allows us to, I believe with all my heart that every one of these students standing before you can be highly resilient disciples, and by the grace of God, they will be. 
but that takes a church, it takes volunteers, it takes a staff, but more importantly, it takes a mom and a dad and grandparents who will pour their lives into the next generation explaining, here's why we believe what we believe and equipping them with the answers before they hear the questions. That's hard work. That's hard work. There's no room for lazy Christianity, lazy discipleship. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?